I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844-COSENTIX. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with one of the legends in the business. Patricia Cornwell is a multi-award-winning novelist and investigative journalist. Her protagonist, the medical examiner Kay Scarpetta, is one of the most famous characters in all of fiction. And I say this with confidence because Patricia Cornwell has sold more than 100 million books. Her work has inspired many TV shows and films and other writers. And she's out today with her latest, Unnatural Death, and Patricia, it's an honor to have you here with us. Well, you're, you're my launch chief now, see? <laughs> I mean, who, who would I rather talk to first off when my book is hitting the streets than you? Well, well and, uh, wow. Thank you for having me. Doubly honored. And I'm excited for your, uh, for your drink choice, Anejo Tequila. Yes. So I, I learned a little bit as I was shopping out for the show. I learned a little bit about tequilas that I didn't really know the difference between Anejo and another kind of tequila, but I learned that means it's aged in the barrel a little longer. Right. Okay. And, now, one, do... and one aged thing tends to like another, i found, <laughs> as I go along in life. Do you have it with ice or just... Ice and, you know, a little splash of water. It's, if okay. it's a nice añejo, a nice tequila, you don't really need anything else. And people don't understand that really good tequila is like really good scotch or mm. cognac. It's like a really fine liquor and um, spirit. And it's uh, you, you want to get the nuances of it. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. And tequila is more of, um, it actually is more of an energizing kind of drink. It's not quite as uh, depressant as other types of spirits. It actually is, makes you, puts you, puts you in a good mood. I can see, I, I have found that because I have tequila sodas a lot in the summer, especially. And I found, I feel better the next day too. I don't get quite the same hangover. 
And uh, it's and if a you fun do, drink. and if I have a name for it, if you overdo the extra añejo, which I have been known to do, then you have what's called a tequila sunrise the next morning, <laughs> and that's when you don't want to get out of bed and everything is discolored and hurts your eyes. Right, like the old uh, <laughs> Mel Gibson and uh, Kurt Russell movie, right? Tequila sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, cheers. It's great to meet well, you. Cheers. It's great to meet you. Thank you. This this is first. The the first debut of the new unnatural death and then drinking a drink with you to to launch. That, your that your first drunk interview, maybe. It might be. So I do not <laughs> hold myself responsible for anything that may happen next. Well, cheers. Mm. That's nice. That is good. You God. picked good. I think, well, you may have the bottle. It'll be a, a gift from the show. It's organic, <laughs> too, which apparently wow. makes us feel better the next day, too. I remember when I was young... It was a thing to drink the worm out young. of. Young, I'm looking at you. <laughs> it's all the lighting in here. I don't serious. Think they so. make me look good. But I remember drinking the the drinking the worm out of the bottle was kind of a thing. Nobody <clears throat> seems to do that anymore, which is probably good. Yeah, I'd probably advise against that if it can be avoided. <laughs> so, in my homework, getting ready to to see you today, I, I discovered a little trivia. Which one piece was that you are related to Harriet Beecher Stowe? I am. Um, and you know what's so strange about that? I mean, I used to hear that when I was growing up, when I was a little kid. Um, my grandmother, uh, who was born in 1890, G- Gigi was, uh, we called her Gigi, Grandma Gussie. But she was a direct descendant from the Beechers. And so um, her her father's father or something was like Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. It was that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, and, and I, one of the first poems I wrote um, one of the early ones, when I was nine years old, I wrote a poem about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Isn't that strange? Um, there was a man, his name was Abe. He lived in a cabin when he was a baby, roamed the lands here and there and set slaves free everywhere. And then one day he got shot in the head and next day poor old Abe was dead, yada, yada. Um, and I go, why? What possessed me to even know those things? So it was very strange when I read Uncle Tom's Cabin the first time mm-hmm. and I felt a real affinity Harriet Beecher Stowe, I felt, I, f- I felt as if I knew her a little bit, and I found that book. You know, if you ask me what book did I wish I'd written, in many ways I wish I'd written that because mm-hmm. it changed the world. It really did. And and in her day, uh, as a woman, she wasn't allowed to receive the book awards. Her husband would have to accept right. them for her. And of course, she got tremendous hatred from people. Um, awful things sent in the mail to her. I went to see her home and look at the original manuscript. A little bit is left. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yes, I. Um, That's incredible that it passed down to you almost either through the genes or through the universe or something, but onto the page of your. Do you still have your poem from nine I years do. old? It's, I have That's it amazing. in a little leather thing. It's in my library. And um, and I just, I just know I had a. a I felt very strongly about that, and I was very upset about this president being assassinated. And mm. um, so, you know, and I think, I think she and I, I, I will never claim to be the, the literary master that she was, but I, what we do have in common— sold more books than she has. Well, I don't know about <laughs> that. Did you know that Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think it sold in, it's, it outsold almost anything in that first that year time, yeah. it came out. Um, but— we write about the same thing, really. The essence of it is the abuse of power, because whether it's a serial killer or someone who enslaves another human being and abuses them, it's all about the abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Almost anything that is wrong in this world is about abuse of power, even if someone mistreats someone who's waiting on your table in a restaurant. Right. It's because you can. Or maybe they mistreat you because they can. And we just aren't supposed to do that. No, that's that's a great point. 
in the Harriet Beecher Stowe connection. So I actually went down that rabbit hole a little bit too. And I found another, so layering trivia upon trivia, I noticed that she had either co-founded or joined the Semicolon Club. I don't know how familiar you are with her background, but do you know this? When she was in Ohio, there was something called the Semicolon Club. I'm not sure what that is. Okay. It was like a small literary club in Cincinnati, I think, that she joined for for uh, a bit of time, which I found kind of interesting because I, I, uh, I don't even know what a semicolon is. Basically, it's one of those weird things. Like as a reader them. and writer, I never know when to I don't, use you, it. I, when I, I try to it? avoid that kind of punctuation. <laughs> it's and I don't like colons either. I have a thing about don't liking colons. They're like little two balled up little fists that say, "Look at this, look at this," oh, that's and I immediately don't want to look. But so what you, was the semicolon thing about? Just a literary. It was a literary little like a salon. Like literary salon exactly. <clears throat> I think mainly for other women during the period of her life when she was in Ohio. So, and then we'd get together and then, and then, but you know, this is all on Wikipedia, so I <laughs> can't, can't take that as gospel. It could be, could be an incorrect entry. But so getting off your heritage for a moment, you were born in Miami. I know you had a couple of rough knocks early on, but then your father abandoned the family when you were only five mm-hmm. and you moved up from Miami to North Carolina. Yeah, that, that was a very strange thing. And, and, you know, my mother it's like a crazy story, almost like the boxcar children, because what she did was um, she decided Miami wasn't safe for us anymore. I mean, I was I was almost seven when she moved us, but I was five when my dad literally walked out on Christmas morning, which was, a ter- you know, which was pretty devastating. I don't. He, but, it, you know, you learn later. It's not about you. It was about what's going on with the two of them. Right. And I remember him and, and not a surprise sometimes on a holiday when someone says, I've had it. I'm out of here. And Did I'm you see not, him again after that. Or that was I not not I mean a little bit while we were still there for the on and off over the next two years. He'd see us on weekends. Sometimes sometimes he didn't show up. And listen, and and I have to tell you right off, I have a lot that I admire my father about. He was a remarkable person. He, he clerked for the Supreme he, Court. He I mean, was, that's a he, big brain. That's he very, graduated that's number thing. one from Columbia Law School. He clerked for Hugo Black, and actually, when, when he was the Supreme Court justice, and my dad actually lived with him for a while after his wife died, and my dad and Hugo Black would play tennis because my mm-hmm. dad was on the the varsity tennis team at Chapel Hill when he was in college, and he was one of the smartest most intriguing people that you would meet, but he had no empathy and he was not a good father. And he Mm -hmm. would probably tell you he wasn't a good father, but he left that Christmas morning. And then my mother, she figured out a time when he wasn't going to notice what we were doing. And she literally put us in the car and drove to Montreat, North Carolina from Miami, because that's where Billy Graham lived. And she figured it'd be a safe place for her children. What a strange thing that was. I mean, she literally moved to Montreal. Did she know Billy, Billy Graham. Graham or just, just Seen knew him of him? Seen him on him TV. And, yeah, yeah. She, uh, you know, he was like the world's most famous evangelist. So how did she, I know this became a big part of your life, a connection with the Grahams and Ruth Bell Graham. How did she actually approach and successfully approach him and sort of get your family involved? She with never the did. I'm not sure she ever met Billy. I mean, seriously, isn't that a weird a town of 200 people? And we were like a mile down the road from where they lived on the top of a mountain, this mm-hmm. house that Ruth had built out of split logs. But um, she never made any effort to, to try to get to know them. She didn't do that. But what happened is the very year I wrote that Abraham Lincoln poem when I was nine and in the fourth grade, my mother had this m- massive uh, breakdown. She was so depressed that she was psychotic. And I can say that openly to you now, because since I have done any kind of publicity, my mother died a couple months ago at 96 years old. And she'd been in a, uh, and and I had been careful for years Mm -hmm. because even though she'd had a stroke and 
couldn't do anything and, and couldn't talk or whatever. I was terrified of her, the TV being on in her room and the place where she's being taken care of and her seeing me talk about this. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. And, to, and But it was, she, I'll just tell you, what she, I just remember it was around, it was after Christmas and we had a blizzard and it snowed so hard that we didn't, we were out of school for three weeks. Turns out it was the biggest blizzard in that part of the world since 1888, which is the year Jack the Ripper started, which is strange because I ended up writing about him one day. Yes, and I'm his, about that. And his father-in-law was friends with Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now, how is that weird? His, Wait, whose father-in-law? Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper's father-in-law was friends with Beecher Stowe. Yes, because wow. I believe Jack the Ripper was Walter Sickert, the artist, right. and he married Ellen Cobden, whose father, Richard Cobden, was a very famous politician. And Harriet Beecher Stowe met the, Mr. Cobden at the White mm-hmm. House at, during the Civil War. And um, and they liked each other so much that she came, when, when she was in London next, she stayed at his house mm-hmm. probably met the daughter who would marry Walter Sickert who would be Jack the Ripper so what a small world we wow. live in but to get back to the story of my mother when I was nine she I remember she drove to the grocery store she and her, our car got stuck in the snow and she called somebody in the town and she said I've just come back from the store and there's blood all over the road and this is when you started knowing something wasn't right and then she came in home and she started burning all our clothes in the fireplace, and I can see it like it was yesterday. She was going through our bedrooms. You're nine. You had siblings? Yes, I had two brothers, one older, one younger. And my older brother, I watched him shimmy up the hallway walls, you know, like someone escaping from prison that we've seen in recent memory. And he pushes out the attic cover that's in the ceiling of the hallway, and he shoves his favorite pair of jeans up there because mom's burning everything. Oh, my gosh. Then she takes us out. She takes a clipper ship off the wall in my brother's bedroom, and we head out the door, and she starts walking us up this snowy mountain. She's holding a clipper ship with her three kids, and the Graham's caretaker's coming down. With, he's the only one with a snowplow, an orange jeep, Mr. Rickman. I, he lived up with the what they call the mountain folks up on Rainbow Mountain, and he's coming down, and he sees this sight, and he knows something's not right about it. So he knew who my mother was, um, but we didn't know the Graham's. He stops his jeep, and he says, Miss Daniels, where are you going? She said, well, we're going up to the Grahams. They're expecting us. Well, he knew that wasn't true. And he said, well, why don't you just hop on in here and I'll give you a ride? I still remember sitting in the back of his open Jeep. I could smell the spare tire. It was right next to me, riding up this winding, steep road to the top of this mountain with this house built out of split logs. Looked like something out of a fairy tale. And the front door opens and Ruth Graham walks out. And she had a long shawl on and a long gray skirt with her hair up. And I thought this is the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was like the good witch and, you mm-hmm. know, Wizard of Oz. And she had us come in and uh, she was and she was very kind to us. We sat in front of the fire. She didn't know any of us. And at this time, Billy Graham is already a national Oh, he's huge the most famous I mean, man in the world. Yeah. And my mother hands Ruth Graham a piece of paper. And the note said, there's go- I'm there's going to be a flood. I'm sailing away. Please raise your children, my children in your kingdom. So she basically gave us to them. Oh, my God. And I wanted them to keep us badly, but they were had other thoughts in mind. We ended up with some missionaries that had come home from the Congo, and that was not a good experience. Um, Miami savages mean missionaries from Congo. Nah, not good. <laughs> not good at all. So. But but what a strange thing. How, how long are you with the missionaries then? You moved, so you well, moved in to your, your mother was then. She was taking a psychiatric patient. hospital. Yeah. 
and Ruth helped arrange that. And the church, she worked with the church to help give us the, the foster people money every month. Here's the strange thing about all that. When I was doing her biography, and, I, and she gave me access to her journals, and I had all her journals, her leather-bound journals, and I would go through them. Um, and I came to the part where she it journaled about my mother yeah, uh, coming up with the kids. Most of it yeah. she, she'd gone through with magic marker and marked through a lot of what she said. But it wasn't until I was doing her biography that I found out that she'd, she, she personally had opened an expense account at the, a little local clothing store if we needed any anything at all that she would pay for it. And mm-hmm. she saw to it that the church gave these people money every month to help for our care. Mm-hmm. And she didn't even know us when she did that. And then, um, so... Did you keep a journal during these years? Um, no, not really. I mean, I've been keeping research journals my whole career, but I didn't really... I wasn't much of a journaler early on like she was. Mm-hmm. But life is very strange i believe in six degrees of separation i believe that we don't understand what reality is because how can people like if your favorite tennis player is billy jean king how can it turn out that someday you're a friend of -hmm. hers you know how does that work when you used to watch this person on tv or that ruth graham after all of that that i told you when i was 19 and really needed some help that she came out of the woodwork and and changed my life Mm -hmm by paying attention to me and being kind to me when I really felt like I didn't want to be here anymore. I was thinking of killing myself, if you want me to be honest. Um, and in the midst of a terrible eating disorder, dropped out of school and felt like the biggest loser there ever lived. And I get a phone and, and my, I, my mom, I got home from this hospital after, because of this eating disorder while I was in a hospital, the same one she'd been in for a month, which was awful because they thought I was, they thought things, they thought, why, I, you see, you gave me liquor and I'm talking too much. <laughs> I've never told these stories, um, it, you know, but, and so people stereotyped me right away mm-hmm. because I went in the same hospital she'd been in. So I must be psychotic. Well, at, I wasn't. At the age of 19. Yeah, at the age of 19. And I was there a month and I didn't get any better. And I came home. I weighed 89 pounds, which is like, 30 pounds less than I weigh now, if that tells you anything, because I'm not exactly a big person. And um, my mom took, when I got home, my mom took me to church that Sunday morning. And I just, and first, and there's these, these people came up to me. I, I was, they came up to me in the lobby of the church. And this one elderly, this elderly woman came up to me and she said, you know, I was going to bake you cookies and send them to the hospital where you were, but I was afraid you'd just throw them up. So I didn't. And I thought, and I'm going to sit through church and listen to this. So mm-hmm. I sat there for a little bit, and I couldn't take it. I couldn't take being out with these people and having them staring at me. So mm-hmm. I got up, and I walked out. Well, later that day, the phone rings, and it's my minister. And he says, I want you. I want to pick you up and take you to the college Sunday school class, the Vespers tonight, and bring your guitar and sing a song for us. Uh, terrible guitarist and a worse singer, but I okay, the minister told me. I go to this Vespers service. I sing my little song. They sit me right next to Ruth Graham. She's sitting right next to me. And she turns to me and she says, let's have lunch sometime. And I thought, oh, sure. The phone will never ring. Mm -hmm. The next day, the phone rang. And it was her inviting me to lunch. And she came and picked me up. And she took me to Pizza Hut in Asheville. And she told me while we were sitting there that her husband was getting death threats. And I thought, she took time out for this little nobody in her town but she's where in her meanwhile her husband's getting death threats and what kind of person is that that's a mighty fine person mm-hmm. and then she made me feel like i mattered 
had nothing to do with religion. I'm not anything like a lot of those the people that still are you know following um some of this is obviously they they don't necessarily prove of me mm-hmm. and so but these I felt very I've always felt blessed like I've had some really wonderful things well, that, happen to me. And I know, so you, we'll, we'll get into some of this in a bit. I know you're you're a terrific tennis player, and I'm sure we're a fan of Billie Jean, and then you become friends. It does feel like sometimes the invisible hand, whatever it is, sometimes gives you what you need or puts you into a place where these very improbable things happen that you and Billie Jean, I know, have become friends and have done some work together to support like charities meeting and things you, like that. I kept, you have no idea. I've been following you forever. And and I thought, maybe someday I'll meet Doug. And here I am. <laughs> you see? You could not possibly have been following me, but I have heard your well, name through you mutual friends. Um, I know, uh, I think, so I, I'm friendly with a number of writers who kind of came up and had their, their debuts in the early 90s or so. Uh, like Dennis Lehane and Lee Child and Harlan Coben and and mm-hmm. other folks. And I remember they consider themselves sort of coming up almost in like a class, like they sort of came out around the same time. They all speak very highly of you. And I, they would see you around some of the book fairs and festivals oh, and nice. things. Well, and, I speak very highly of them and, and know them. So it's that's wonderful. Yeah. You remind me, there's a little something, uh, you and Lee are, are obviously different people, but there's like a quality about the two of you that reminds me of each other. Like Lee, when he comes into the room, he has a presence, sort of this relaxed coolness and you you have the same quality about you well thank you i don't know how cool i am or but i but it, was he drinking tequila when he was relaxed so because, when lee came on see, the show and i'm still drinking mine and you're not drinking yours i'll, I'll catch up i'll catch up there when, may be some scandal i've not told anybody that will surface right, we, we, any minute exactly we got to get this going there's a whole <laughs> bottle here we got to get through when lee came on the show i said well what are you going to drink he goes well i drink Champagne and black coffee. You decide. And so we we had champagne when he came on, which was fun. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him yet, but I'd certainly like to. I read I, I read a number of his books, and 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 I don't read that much crime fiction, but but I I um admire what he does. He's so good with drama. Yeah, and that's hard to have in crime fiction because so often you're telling things from the point of view of the protagonist. And so how much drama... Right, they don't know what's going on yet. They can't. No, and there's a lot of it is paperwork and sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. But um, but I, I love what he does. And, and, and I'm always moved by people who can write images that I can still hear, look at, see, and smell. Mm-hmm. After, long after you've put the book down. Yes, yeah. long after you've put the book down. Yeah, well, you and Lee both have... You're very skilled on the page. You really have well, great you. command of what's, what's happening there. Um. So just to close out on the sort of Miami to North Carolina bit, your your dad, whose um, whose name was Daniel Sam Daniels, he he you know incredible lawyer, clerked for the Supreme Court. So that listeners know that's an amazing thing. I mean, very that's that's a huge aspiration for every lawyer to to be able to do that. So clearly a big brained guy. What uh, happened with your dad? Your mom just passed away, but what about your dad? Well, my dad passed away a long time ago. He was—he died at age. He was only sixty-nine. He had terrible. Uh, after the, the divorce, he developed terrible rheumatoid arthritis at a very young age, and was on steroids and stuff forever. And and he just his, his immune system was destroyed, and mm. and he really almost couldn't leave the house because he had to be so worried about getting sick, and his skin was really thin from all the steroids. He would bleed very easily, um, but and he. Um, you know, I, I think my dad grew up in a weird way. And I think that I think he was a product of uh, he was bullied a lot. He was a, an incredibly smart 
person. And I think he wore glasses when he was a little boy and he kind of looked like somebody that people would pick on. Mm -hmm. And when he was at Chapel Hill, he was roomed with the football players because, you know, tennis players weren't that big a deal back in those days. And and, and he had a roommate who, who was really bullied him and gave him a lot of trouble. And I think my dad, I think he was changed by things like that. And then yeah. I'm sure that my mother, my mother was just really talented, artistic, unusual person and and very, very beautiful when she was young. And I think that my father didn't realize that her psychiatric stuff was going to be, he didn't know what it was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I can trust me when I say, and I'm sorry, mom, because you're not here, but you know, it's true. Um, when she would get in a bad way, it was not pretty. And it was really difficult to be around. Um, when she would get paranoid and start accusing you of things that you hadn't yeah. done. And God only knows what he put up with. And so I, I have, I'm not going to say I forgive him because I'm not, I'm not, I don't judge him to begin with. One thing I know at this stage of life, and I'm not that far off from how old he was when he died. I know that what goes on in your life sometimes has nothing to do with those people who are hurt by you. And you don't want to hurt anybody, but we all hurt. We all hurt people. It, we all yeah. do. And so I'm I'm grateful I had him as a father because I learned a lot from him. And I really could not do the dissections that I do in my crime novels had I not had his brain. You know, his big thing was he's the first appellate, professional appellate specialist in the United States. He was an appellate lawyer. So basically he did autopsies on the law. Mm-hmm. He would dissect it when a, when there was a verdict in court. He would go through and find something that would make it not so. And and so, and I and he could see things and he just knew. And so I I appreciate anything I got. From my yeah. parents that helped me be who I am. That's interesting. I, I went on a bit of a like a mini journey there with that because I was thinking when you were talking about your dad, the idea that he was bullied and and it led to these things. It's the idea of like what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. It's like well that's not always true. Sometimes it really messes us up, you know, and sort of led to him having some difficulties. But in your case, what doesn't kill us does make us stronger. You you actually and that's a frame of mind in some ways. Like you had this difficult experience as a childhood, but look, you're like. But it helped me do this other thing. I became strong in these oh, other ways, yeah. which is amazing. Oh, it's a gift. Oh, yes. You know, that, that foster mother who's long gone, if I ever see her, and I probably won't because I don't think we'll be in the same place. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I don't care if you were a How long were you with them? Well, I was about a better part of three months the first time. And then my mom had this happen again when I was in the eighth grade. And I went back there again for another few months. And it was even mm-hmm. worse the second time. But um, Were you together with your brothers? The second time, my older one was all, he was off and he was not there. It was just my younger one. But she she hated me for some reason. I, she, I'm the one she went after. Not my younger mm-hmm. brother, not my older brother. But I think it was because I was a girl and still am as best I know. But who knows anything anymore? <laughs> <laughs> you know. But we'll, we'll save that for the lightning We'll round. save that for the next time. <laughs> but um, it was a gift because... Yeah. I felt like in the middle of a Hansel and Gretel fairy tale, a bad one, you know, just that was yeah. a bad one, too. And I don't know, you when you got something that's oppositional, that you 
push against, you keep finding that the rest of your days. And, and I, 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 I have evil women and I kill evil women off and mm. I do it over and over again and I have good reason for it. Are you close with your brothers? Do you ever get together and be like, can you believe the crap we dealt with growing up? You know, my, my brothers, I am, I, we're close and I do see them from time to time and we talk on the phone and do whatever. We don't live anywhere near each other, but they don't remember, the, they don't remember the same things I do. They don't mm. remember that was not their experience. They don't remember it. And they, I think that my younger brother, when some of this was going on, that he just would absent himself. He was, mm -hmm. the first time when I was nine, he was six. So, you know, he just didn't want to see what was going on in that yeah. house. Yeah. And, and fear. You had Stockholm Syndrome, identify with the aggressor, make sure you please that person. And so those around you tend to not look. Because they don't want to be hurt. They don't want her coming after them. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's okay. Um, it was a gift. And I'm and, and listen, to be fair, if those people hadn't taken us in, I don't know what would have been. We, we would, I don't know where we'd have ended up. We might have ended up down in Florida in three separate homes because that's what my father had in mind for us. And so I have to thank them for that. But it was, it was one of the worst things I've ever been through when oh I was gosh. there. Like physically, they were. It wasn't physical, more as physical as much as it was emotional. Yeah, it was being berated and screamed at, and um, told what you're, what a bad person you are, and always being accused of things that you didn't do. It wasn't true. And the worst part was when mom got sick the first time when I was nine. She just bought a dog. This, uh, that was part of her not being well. She went to a pet store and spent a lot of money for a little puppy Maltese. You know, those little long white haired mm. uh, dogs that require a lot of care. Well, when we got moved over to these people's house, the dog was there. The puppy was there for about two nights and she decided that couldn't work because it was a puppy. It was on newspapers. It wasn't house trained anything. It was like eight, nine weeks old. So she had it moved back to our house where it was tied to a metal pole in the basement where the heat's not on. And it was averaged in the 40s and 50s down there. And it was on newspaper. And I was told to go over there every day. And I had 20 minutes to feed the dog and change the papers. And she would time me until I ran through the woods and got back. And did the dog ever get outside? It no. Was it was always on a pole in the basement. Never tied saw the there the whole time. It, the whole time that we were uh, wow. at these people's house, it was like two and a half something months. And to this day... I can see myself opening that basement door painted blue, and I can still see the key on a rubber band walking in. I can see every bit of it, but the minute I get to where that dog, I, I, the fact that I call it that dog, depersonalization, the minute I would get in there, I can't see it anymore because I couldn't bear it. To see something miserable and suffering and alone mm -hmm. and not to be able to help it because you're not allowed to, that was the worst thing about it for me. Yeah. The worst. The worst. And... That part I've never gotten over, and I don't want to remember it because it, it's here something screaming for you because oh. it's cold and hungry and lonely, and it's like, and then you can't help it because someone's timing you to run back through the woods, and I want to take care of my dog. I, that's what I won't forgive her for is for the dog. Mm -hmm. Now you're really getting me riled up. You oh see? my gosh, me too. That is just the worst. <laughs> we have dogs, and I just I can't. That, no, it's so do we. Yeah, to... Stacy and I, we do dog rescue and all kinds of stuff, and mm -hmm. um, you know that. But again, these are very trivial troubles compared to what other people suffer. When you look what's going on in the world today, oh my gosh! When people are 
bombing your neighborhood to heck with your dog, heck with everything, you know, all of you. I mean, it's these things are trivial compared to what I see today. And I'm only grateful for them, not because I feel sorry for myself, not in the least, but they help shape me and they help make me stronger to do what I need to do and to feel a righteous indignation over suffering, the things that people do that are unkind and and just like Scarpetta. No, no bueno. I don't tolerate that. Well, to your credit, to being able to draw strength from it and to to move on from it. Not everybody's able to move on from from that kind of thing. But so you move on to Davidson College on a tennis scholarship, uh, which is phenomenal. Now, I read you you basically turned down the scholarship later on or something. I what? quit it. Okay. Because I still had my eating disorder. I mean, I'd, I this was 1976. I'd just gotten out of that hospital. In the spring of 1976, I taught tennis lessons that summer, and the director of admissions at Davidson happened to be sitting on a bench when my pupil, my student, said, where are you going to college this fall? I said, I don't know. I'm thinking of transferring, but I don't know where I'm going to go. And this voice came up out of nowhere and says, what about Davidson? And I turned and I looked at him sitting on the bench. Me with my used tennis balls, I pick out of the creek behind the fence in a grocery bag throwing them to this person. He says, Davidson. And I said, yeah, and I've always wanted a Rolls Royce too. <laughs> and he said, we should talk. And we did. They accepted me without my ever even having a visit on campus. And um, that was, again, a miracle because I dropped out of college. Um, you know, I had this eating disorder, been in a psychiatric hospital for a month, and the and somebody, a, a big person in Montreat, told Davidson not to accept me. They said, don't do that to her. She'll, she won't make it. But And I think Ruth Graham went to bat for me. Yeah. And um, I ended up going there. But I realized, the, I walked down for the tryouts of the tennis team, and I thought, I've never even written a term paper. This is the hardest school on the effing planet. And I... I'm not playing tennis. Plus, I weigh 89 pounds and can hardly walk up the stairs anymore. I quit. Mm -hmm. So they called me into the admissions office and said, like a bait and switch thing. You're supposed to play tennis and now you're not going to. And I said, I can't. I said, if you don't want to keep me here, it's fine. But I'm just going to study. I'm just going to try to make good grades. And I'd been told I'd never make anything above a C because my, my SATs were I mean, like I used to joke, Marino's bowling score is higher than my SATs. <laughs> and and so, and I was told, you'll never see above a C, but they gave me a chance. And I actually only made one B the whole time I was there. The rest were A's and B pluses because um, I applied myself and I focused on what I was doing. And, and, and I had a lot of attention from the faculty mm -hmm. and it was, you know, good for you. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of my, of my wife because she... Did not have a great SAT score either, but her dad had passed away a little bit prior to that, and her mom was busy and juggling a few things with other siblings and with her, and she walked into school one day, and they're like, all right, get your pencils ready for the SAT, and she's like, what? We're taking the, you know, every other kid had taken a pre-SAT course and a Princeton Review course and all these other things. She walked in there not even knowing she was about to take the class. You want to know, so, know how bad mine was? You want to know? I mean, this, I've never told this in public because it's really humiliating. My first SAT score was 830. Most people don't even make that on one. In fact, when I first told someone, they said, well, what was the rest of it? <laughs> I said, that is the rest of it. That is the rest of it. Because the, the thing that killed me was the math section. I can't do math. And I thought I couldn't do science either. Um, and lo and behold, who would ever think that I would love science the way I do? Right now, you're the forensic, you know, leading mind. 
Well, I don't know, but I understand these things. But I was, I, I sure didn't back in the day. But that was, I had so many funny experiences at Davidson because I, I literally had a necklace. And I've told this before, a little square, rec, a little rectangular gold thing on this little a charm mm-hmm. that you're supposed to get engraved with your initials or something. But I left it blank because I said, I'm a tabula rasa. I'm a blank slate. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to wear this in college because I'm going off to a school where I've never written a term paper. And all these kids are like these scholars, the top of their high school classes or everything. And so it was so funny, like my first English class there guess the dreaded subject of term paper. This Dr. Cole, we're reading Paradise Lost. And I'm going to have to write a term paper. I don't want to write a term paper, but I love Paradise Lost. So I, after class, I said, Dr. Cole, could I just do an epic poem instead of a term paper? And he goes, that might be a bit ambitious, Ms. Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> and he persuaded me not to try to write another Paradise Lost. So I think I did some term paper. But but I had I would get them thrown back at me because I didn't know how to do footnotes. I'd never mm. done an outline. I'd never done any of this stuff. I thought George Eliot was a man. I didn't know nothing. And um, and I would get these professors who would say, Miss Daniels, have you read blah, blah? No, sir. Have you read? A-? No, 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 no. I wish I were you. I have so much to look forward to with things to read. And so. This- Did you find a, a professor in there who sort of. They saw I, through that. Though, oh, they all did. They were all wonderful. They did not. They didn't judge me that I didn't know anything when I got there. All they mm-hmm. cared about is maybe I might know something by the time I left, if that was the key. Mm-hmm. But that was when I wrote. I wrote my first novel when I was at Davidson. I, um, I, I started falling in love with literature. I don't read all that much literature, but I appreciated it so much. I do read Hemingway, and not I just because. I don't know anybody that describes things better or is better with dialogue than Hemingway. Mm-hmm. I, it's just, wow, he's like somebody that only has a screwdriver and he can build the most beautiful bridge you've ever seen. I go, how do you do that yeah. without adverbs, without adjectives? And no um, one else can replicate it. You know, there's everyone who tries to be like Hemingway, but they can't do it. It's just like his own way of, of doing it. And you know when you're reading it, it just gives you that feeling. Yes. And so I it, admire what people do, but I've never been... I'm not like some literary scholar, and I didn't mm-hmm. get into graduate school, and that's why I ended up going to the newspaper, and that's why I'm sitting here today. That's right. Yeah, so you became a crime reporter in Charlotte, and then six years at the <laughs> office of the chief medical examiner in Virginia, which gave you this sort of forensic front row seat to uh, But we have to done. talk about why I went there. I never went there because I wanted a job there. Um, when, when I was at Davidson, there were two things I would not do. One was go to funerals, including a really good friend of mine who died. I would not go around anything dead. Would not. Why? I just did not want to. I found the thought of it so depressing and morbid, and I did not want to ever do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably I was afraid of it. And the second thing was avoid everything science at all costs. Drop chemistry after one day. Drop computer science after two days. Take astronomy because you had to have some science and you can't do relativity math problems. And so once again, I go to the professor and say, I wrote a poem about the life and birth of a star and I illustrated it and I did it all in rhyme. And I I was a cartoonist in college. So I drew all these things and because I kept flunking the relativity math problem every damn time on the quiz. I'd get everything else right relatively wrong. Rel- relative. So I went to see Dr. Manning, and I gave him the poem. I said, I just want you to know it's not because I'm a lazy ass or because I'm whiny. I can't 
do it. I don't have the molecules for it. But this is what I do have them for. So you understand I know what you're saying and I get it. And I gave him that thing, this poem. I, th- I think I might have a copy of it somewhere still. I don't know. And he ended up giving me a B plus for the whole semester. And trust me, I didn't deserve it mm-hmm. with my relativity questions. <laughs> um, so to, I love it. Every professor recognized something in you, though. Well, I think it's also because they they just didn't know what to do with some. You know, if you just keep mm-hmm. trying and say, look, I can't do that. But how about if I did this? Look at this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was an unusual place. They were they were open for things that were different. But that it, D- Davidson was. Um, but all of that taught me to be resourceful. And I say this to everybody out there, just because you can't do one thing doesn't mean you can't do something else that's so much better that you'll get there anyway. Mm-hmm. Don't keep banging your head against that wall. If you can't do this, go do that. So was there a job interview for the medical examiner's office? No. What happened is after I'd been the crime reporter at the Charlotte Observer and I did the Ruth Graham biography, my my then husband wanted to move to Richmond to go to seminary. He wanted me a minister. He, I married an English professor, but, you know, which is everybody does when they want to A. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but he wanted to go into the church and um, we moved to Richmond. Mm-hmm. And I thought and I did the biography, the Ruth biography. And, and then I was, so was 83. The biography came out, right? Yes. Yeah. You have done your homework. You see? Um, yes. Back in the Stone Age, you weren't even a thought, much less born. And so <laughs> oh, I was. I, uh, the, the lighting is really working for me. I was 12 then. Then I wanted to know the name of your doctor because <laughs> I'm going. But um, when, you know, so, so Charlie moved to Richmond and then we had the Ruth book and all everything led to nowhere for me. The agent dropped me. I even said, because it was a, a considered a religious book, you know, her biography, Harper Collins. It was Harper. It was a Harper and Row imprint that was the religious imprint back in those days. And. They, I said, what, what if I, I want to write murder mysteries? No, thank you. What if I did religious murder mysteries? No, thank you. Those have been awful, by the way. Ooh, God, I'd have to kill off everybody in those, including the good people. All of them would go. <laughs> no, I didn't really say that. Depends on what they're like. But the judgmental ones, definitely. Um, but I thought, okay, I'm going to write. I want to write books about crime. Now, the one thing I don't know is what does a medical examiner do? Because when I was the crime reporter, they would not get on the phone. You never, the detectives never told you what happened to the body. Just, you knew it was smelly and they had Vicks up their nose. That's about as much as you knew. (laughs) So we knew a doctor in Richmond and he was friends with Marcella Fierro, who was a deputy chief medical examiner. He said, I can get you an appointment with her. Which is an irony because most nobody wants an appointment with a medical examiner for obvious reasons. If you have to schedule that person, things are not going well right. for you. <laughs> so I got this appointment and I, in the spring of 1984, I, I went down there and met with her and she gave me a tour of the place. There, there were no bodies out. It was, you know, all cleaned up. It was the afternoon. And then she started showing me all these photographs, you know, gory stuff. Um, and we're talking in the conference room and I realized how much I don't know because I said stupid things like, do you wear your lab coat to crime scenes? She says, no, I don't wear my lab coat to crime scenes. I said, do you put Vicks up your nose? No, I don't put Vicks up my nose. And I said, well, why is that? She says, well, two reasons. One, sometimes what I smell may tell me something like cyanide. It smells like burnt almonds if you're one of 33% of the world that can smell cyanide. I go, oh, okay. And the other thing is, 
Um, actually, something viscous like VIX captures the molecules, the putrefaction molecules, which just means you've now trapped it all right up in your schnoozle. <laughs> so I don't put VIX up my nose. And I thought, can, when can I come back and see you again? Because I got a lot to learn. Yeah. So I kept going back once a month. And I said, when are you going to let me see autopsies? And she said, it's not a spectator sport. The answer is never. I said, why? What can I do? She said, get legitimacy. I'm not Tom Jones, as in the novel. How do I become legitimate? Well, why don't you become a volunteer cop? And you come down here in your uniform. Then no one questions why you're in the morgue. Mm -hmm. So I came back a couple months later wearing a uniform because I became a volunteer cop, mostly doing traffic. I worked a lot of parades, dog bite reports. Um, you know, the traffic. But you were on south. You're a paid. No, it was, it was volunteer. Volunteer. Okay. And but I got a but uniform. It's legit. Yeah. And I always had wanted a uniform and a whistle. I'm just whistle. Being no gun, but a whistle. No, but a whistle and a uniform is getting close. <laughs> <laughs> so they let me. So she let me start watching autopsies and. And then, this is why CSI and and Law and Order SUV. That's why they're all reading you to figure out. Well, they you know, needed some moron like me who would go do all the things I did to make it yeah. accessible to those smart people who would create the shows. <laughs> and it, even Marcella will tell you today. She's now in her eighties. Eighties. She would say that what the Scarpetta series did was make all of this accessible. To everybody else. Yeah. I didn't create anything that wasn't already out there. There was I didn't create forensic medicine or forensic science. But what I did is, um, you know, when nobody will hire you and you know you're the biggest loser that ever lived, you will go in the morgue and do anything to learn if maybe, maybe you can write something that that somebody wants. Yeah. And that's just been my that's been what I do. I just that's uh, it's kind of like the survival instinct that I won't stop because I feel there's a story and I will find it. I will find it. And as I find it, it will find me, which is the bigger thing that happens. So you do six years there. And I know you started drafting your first novel in the 1984 period. Four novels. Four novels. I wrote one draft, a year. Draft, draft, these are Full ones that are like thing. in the bottom drawer. They never go out. No, they all went out and they all got rejected. Oh, the yeah, okay. first one went out 1985. Nobody wanted it. 86. Nobody wanted it. 87. Nobody wanted it. And And then I thought, I called this person, Sarah Ann Freed, this editor at the Mysterious Press, had rejected all three of them, and she had written nice notes. Mm -hmm. So desperate me. I get the number from directory assistance back in the day when there was such a thing, and I called the Mysterious Press. May I speak to Sarah Ann Freed, please? I sounded very official. I think I might have faked a British accent. I'm not sure. <laughs> but she gets on the phone, and I said, this is so-and-so, and I know I'm not supposed to do this. I said, but please tell me, should I quit? And she said, no. I don't think you should quit. I said, what well, a great, what? honest question. And I, I said, but what's yeah. wrong? What am I doing wrong? She said, well, two things. One, your main character, who was a cop named Joe Constable, who drove a BMW. Who wants to read about that? Nobody. Two, that, that's a dud, she said. But this woman medical examiner you have, this Dr. Scarpetta character, um, I'd go with her if I were you. Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, what? A okay. And she said, I have one other thing to ask you. I said, what's that? She said, you work in the morgue, don't you? And I said, well, I do now. And she said... Well, these stories you've been telling, is this what you see there? And I said, no, I don't see anything like that there. What I see there is so horrible, I don't want to talk about it. She says, well, that's what I want to see. So I thought, well, we had these serial killings going on. We had, and I went, wow, okay, this is hard because I told myself I don't want to add to the problem by glorifying what I see down here every day, mm -hmm. the death. It's not a mystery. It's horrible. But if Scarpetta had serial murders going on in her jurisdiction in Richmond, what would she do? Because I've been through it, I've seen it, 
And I've seen the medical examiner come to work with hives in the morning and this case file is all wrapped up with tape so nobody looks at them. And the unbearable of all of this, because I was there when it was going on, I said, okay, if you want to, if you want to show this to people, then I'm going to show it to them for real. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show them what I see. And that was postmortem. Which is a huge hit. So that comes out in 1990. And, and, and I was just telling you before you, we went live here, I was with my editor a couple hours ago. And he's like, I remember when postmortem came out in 1990 and, and at their imprint, they're like, we got to steal her. This is amazing. Won all these awards, became a big seller. It wasn't, it's, it, but wasn't successful at the very beginning. It was really more of the same. That got rejected by almost every major house in New York. I was already looking for newspaper jobs, again, being told that I'd been in the morgue longer than I'd been a reporter. And nobody, <laughs> as the Washington Post said, we don't have a morgue beat. No, thank you. And so I didn't know what I was going to do with myself when Scribner's then took it on by a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, I think that call was in January of 1989. And um, and then when it came out, it got a terrible book review in Richmond, and what? it, got, it, it got, got but it got a bunch of awards too later. But okay. at first, right out of the shoot, it got panned by the Richmond newspaper, and then um, the the most prominent uh, bookstore in the city called me to tell me they were banning the book because they did not approve of it. It was so graphic. Mm. What? Well, thank you for that because it went out over the wire, and and banning me in Richmond was actually helpful if i'd thought of it i might have paid him to do it i'm just joking but uh i I was devastated Mm -hmm. and i didn't then i did one book signing at at a religious bookstore called cokesbury right downtown and i'll never forget because the man who ran the store agreed that he would let me i walked down there during my lunch hours very close to the morgue and i said why don't you have me for a book signing he said okay we, we can do that um i said but will you put my books in your window he said, oh, I can't buy enough books to put it in the window, but you can do a signing here. So what if I have one free case? What if I give you my free case and you put them in the window? He said, okay. Well, I gave him my f- whole case of first edition postmortems, which are now over $2,000 a piece. I think it was like 20 of them. He put them in his window and he didn't give them back, just so you know. <laughs> and not a single person showed up for that book signing. So when I started getting phone calls about winning awards or getting good book reviews elsewhere, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I thought you're just I, I thought, you know, you're going to end up being a computer programmer in a morgue the rest of your days. Um, but, you know, there are worse things that could happen, I guess. I just mm-hmm. always would tell everybody if I die here, don't laugh at my pictures. You know, to your earlier thought about talking about serial killers adding to the problem, I, it doesn't add the, the the common thinking on this is you shine a light on it. You talk about it. It's because Scarpetta's point of view. Yeah. yeah you're not. And it's no, clearly because, like solving the problem. More but than what that. I won't do is. I won't ever take the point of view of those that do these things. And, and the few, the some, I did write a couple of Scarpetta books, a few of them from third, third person point of view, because mm-hmm. I thought people would like that better, which they did not. I, um, you know, we have a process. Go ahead. I, I want, that's one of my questions in process, because I know you've made a switch. In, in, well, uh, you know, when I wrote about Jack the Ripper and, and it was third person, you know, omniscient point of view. So you can, mm-hmm. everybody sees everything going on. I thought, you know. Maybe in the next Scarpetta, I should do the same thing. And mm-hmm. I did Blowfly, and I did Trace, and I did Predator, and went. And I had no idea that my my readers didn't like it. So, how do you get feedback from readers in those situations? I, you know, Is it I emails should, coming in off your website. I actually or? didn't. I got it eventually from the publisher, but they no, they didn't tell me for years. And I wish they had because they finally said, "Well, you know, a lot of people don't like this third person point of view." And I said. Okay. So people email the publisher or whatever, and then they. Sort I don't of... know how they hear about it, but they okay. did, and um, and I thought I I'm gonna and, and I, 
I finally figured out why. It's, it's pretty obvious. The things that I write about are very real. When you go in that more cooler, baby, I know what that's like, and I'm going to show it to you like you're there right by yourself doing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. That's okie-dokie as long as she's with you. When Scarpetta's with you, you're okay. When she's not with you, the world mm-hmm. that I know is not a, it's a little hard for people. And I think, um, you know, and it's also, I remember a fan said, you know, when I read about Scarpetta, I feel smart. I thought, wow, I didn't realize they become Scarpetta, mm-hmm. and they should. First-person point of view, you put on her shoes the same way I did when I wrote Postmortem, and you have to walk around in them, and you learn something because she's there. And so that was a mistake. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes in my mm-hmm. series over the years. I have, and, um, and I'm still trying to correct them. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So you were talking about when you were saying that you decided to learn experience in a morgue and you, you decided to take that as a job and get sort of, sort of on the job experience, I was thinking you almost sort of like did an outline of your life or at least gave yourself a list of to-dos, but do you outline these books ahead of time? No, I never have. Oh, hello, college outlines, mm-hmm. um, index cards. I can't do them. Mm-hmm. I don't do them. I work in an organic way. And so this is not necessarily saying it's better, a good or bad thing. This is just me. Mm-hmm. And for me, 
I have to experience something. It has to move me. It has to uh, pique my curiosity and fill me full of wonder, whether it's a radio telescope in, in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia or a crew capsule that they're dropping from a gantry at, at, you know, NASA Langley Research Center or an autopsy where someone's been struck by lightning and they're trying to s- figure out how to photograph the burn that's on the inside of the shoe when the, the electricity exited the body. And, and you're looking at this on a table. And all of these things, um, you can't be, you don't know what to ask. You don't know the answer because you don't even know the question. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what I do is I just think something makes me interested. I'm going to go look at it with no questions in advance. I'm going to see what it has to tell me, mm-hmm. whether it's a dead body on a table or a radio telescope, like I just said, or some kind of weapon that's something new, or it, it could be, or it could be something as weird as something I'm looking into right now, which is they're making, you know, fake moon dust. They make a, a regolith, as it's called, that's they make it in laboratories because you have to experiment with the stuff to feel, figure out what spacesuits are going to do on the moon and Mars and beyond. And I get interested in all of this because where anything is made, you have trace evidence that gets transferred to other places. Mm-hmm. And then you think about what if that turns up on a body somewhere? Moon dust. That the scanning electron microscope picks up, or is but is it really moon dust, or is it fake moon dust? Now, that's the stuff that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> that's great. I, I love that. But by the way, this is another area where you and Lee are similar. So you have two areas now because he does not outline, and he feels you know more energy on the page if even I don't know what's happening next. And I get surprised. Yeah, I you get can surprise yourself. Oh, yeah. I get surprised every time, and then I say it sounds kooky, but. Like in this new one I'm I'm starting right now, um, I didn't know that the victim was someone that Scarpetta had a history with. And I went, well, now you tell me. You, you mean you went spent a summer in Rome between Richmond and the medical examiner's office in Miami, and you had this thing with this dude you never told me? And so, <laughs> well, I, I didn't think I answered you, she might say. And so, but it's fun. It's, it's um, if it's all... By prescription, what's there to wonder about? And if I don't wonder about something, then you're not either. So creatives create. We don't just duplicate. That's, so here's here's another process question. Do you look forward to it? Because I hear different answers from writers on this topic. Some people procrastinate and they sort of have to drag themselves to the desk. Other people run to the desk. Well, I don't run to the desk. Um, I, as I get into the story, I look forward to it more because I can pick up where I am. But when in the early stages, and I literally spend the first five months on the first 50 pages because it's like a, a computer algorithm. I'm trying to distill, figure out what is going on here. And I don't know where it's going, but I know that it's right and it's going in the right direction. And then it starts going where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And I get surprised by things. For example, I'll tell you in the new one, Unnatural Death, my biggest problem when I was starting this book was the whole notion of Bigfoot, because I can't write about things I don't believe. Mm-hmm. And I'd been hearing all this stuff and there were things in the news about some other Bigfoot sighting. And I thought, you know what? I've been hearing about this really my whole life, Bigfoot. What? the heck is this about? And by the way, what would Scarpetta do if she found a footprint like that out in the middle of nowhere in an uninhabited forest and in, inside an abandoned gold mine in the dirt where mm-hmm. you don't even know how recently any other human's been there? Right. What are you going to do with this? What is she going to do with this? I called Marcella. Okay. She's retired now. And, and she, the former chief medical examiner of Virginia, the first woman chief for real. And I said, Marcella, here's a good one for you. 
okay, you're out in the middle of the woods. You got these two dead bodies. They got hiking poles that they're stabbed with. One's in a in the mine shaft. The other's floating in a polluted lake with all these critters everywhere, snakes and horrible things, and no people. Um, and you find this footprint where somebody does. You know, this huge 18-foot, 18 18-inch 18 footprint looks like, you know what? She, I said, what are you going to do? She said, well, first thing I think, someone's probably having fun with me, but if they're not, I'm just going to work this evidence like any evidence because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I said, thank you. I feel better about this now because that's exactly what she's going to do. Yeah. Work it like any other evidence. But in doing the research for Sasquatch, right. Bigfoot, and watching videos and most of all listening to the 911 calls... Ooh, you want your hair to stand on and you listen to some of those because these people believe what they're saying. They definitely believe they saw definitely. something. Definitely. And I, I, you have all angles covered in the books. You've got the one character who's 100% down the Bigfoot lane and believes it. And the others are like, wait a minute. Come on. This is probably, you know, uh, a prosthetic whatever foot that has been, you know. And then you have the some. Well, you got Marino who wants it to be Bigfoot because right. he believes in all things paranormal. You have Lucy who doesn't really care. Might be, might not. It's not relevant to her. Le- Scarpetta doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lucy's more skeptical. Scarpetta is more like, eh, it's like UFOs. I don't know. Why is everybody talking about it all the time if it ain't out there? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I've seen one, which I have, by the way. But she, maybe she hasn't. And um, so I, but when I started doing the research and I talked to Jeff Meldrum, who's one of the top Bigfoot experts in the world. He's at university out in Idaho. Um He's an anthropologist and an anatomist, and he basically, he can reconstruct the position the creature was in when it left a certain print, like it was looking over its shoulder, looking back, and the mm-hmm. muscles, the way they move. Something would be really hard to do with a prosthetic device, but more to the point, if you you got to remember, there are fossils of these things. They did exist once mm-hmm. in Asia, and then they thought to have gone extinct over during the ice age but the thing is there were when the water levels went down in the seas and the land bridges were formed between continents you literally under 300 miles you could have walked from what's today siberia to alaska and early humans did and what makes you think that these big creatures that were six seven eight ten feet tall much stronger than humans Mm -hmm. upright can walk on two feet what makes you think they didn't cross over and end up in the the northwest Mm -hmm. and then remnants migrating to uninhabited areas where they have food, water, and most of all are not going to be shot by humans. And when I started this book, my biggest problem, it was the same thing like postmortem. I did not want to do harm. And I thought, I am not going to show Bigfoot hurting anybody. There's no record of Bigfoot ever hurting anybody in recent history that we know of. Um, and I'm not going to have him accused of that. That's like Peter Benchley's greatest regret with Jaws, right? He, you know, everyone had shark phobia after that and started hunting sharks. With all and due respect to Peter Benchley, jaw phobia is a real thing and deserves to exist. I, I, there are real sharks that have killed people. Well, that's true. <laughs> and there, there is no real Bigfoot that we've ever seen with a little fin coming above the water and then somebody yeah. going being pulled under. Um, yeah, I think the the residents but, of Cape Cod could do with a few less great whites out there. I don't want anybody going out in the woods with their AR-15 thinking they're going to find Bigfoot and, and shoot it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this thing very well could exist. Jane Goodall thinks it might exist. Um, and I don't want it hurt. Yeah. What I worry about are people. Yeah. You know, if we would leave most animals alone, they don't want to hurt us. Yeah. All right. A couple more on process. Uh, do you have a place? So we're sitting, by the way, just not oh. not, to, not to tequila shame you, I'm but I think up. I have caught and passed you on the tequila. And so I'm going to add a little more. Would you like a little more? Well, you know what? Why not? And then when I, you know, I know it's hard to believe that I might have another interview after you because how could I? But, but 
you, I will be so well lubricated by then that God only knows. I might, I might tell them, you know, where the Holy Grail is. I might well, know. You know. We'll get the Holy Grail out of you here. And then by the time you're there, you'll just be slurring too much. They won't even know what you're saying. Um, and I gave you a little extra ice and water on that one. So it'll be, we can. You we should can bring Lee Child in and we should all drink and talk sometime. Let's do it. You know what I was thinking I about doing? I would love to. I want to do a like a I've holiday book recommendation thing. I'll get like three or four people in, and everyone can talk about their favorite books or yeah, something like that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Even something bizarre that people haven't thought about. You know, something that like what's the book that you carried around with you when you were a teenager? And it would not be anything that people would think that I would have carried around with me. We should co-host. We'll co-host the next episode. It. We'll bring in like two or three more people. You and I will decide who comes. Oh, and we'll have fun. We'll do it. We'll get the. They have a huge studio here. We and can if do they've it in- ever killed anybody, you and I will figure it out, <laughs> and we will solve the crime right while they're sitting there. And Lee Child, you know, I might outsell him next time if I could get him accused of something. Do you think? Definitely, definitely. Well, you tell him you better watch out. Yeah, you might have some, <laughs> no matter what. You know what? I'm looking for the the, the case Garpetta Amazon series or or big screen or whatever. It's coming. That's gotta, is you that? Know, oh, I have a deal. I did not know that. It's but it's TV, and it is absolutely. Um, Amazon is going to do it. And oh my gosh, um, I was just making that up because no, I, I think Reacher. Well, here on we Amazon. are. But since you got me on launch day, see, I tell you all my dirty secrets and even the nice <laughs> secrets too. And it's not just the alcohol; it's really your fault. Um, but yes, um, Nicole Kidman's going to play Scarpetta. Oh my God, this is amazing! And is Jamie, this, are there articles about this yet? Um, or no? Something came out that was leaked in February. Nothing's okay. come out since because um, it's never been officially released because of the strikes that started. Right. And right. but now that the writer's strike is over. I mean, I'm going to talk about this, and because you know, I'm just that going congratula- to. Oh, cheers! But, Let's but, see, now that we have new tequila, well, cheers that's to. It. And not only that, so they they're gonna. It's Amazon. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis is uh, the producer with with uh, Jason Blum. You know, Blumhouse, mm-hmm. which does the Halloween movies, and Jamie, um, she's the reason this is happening. She's been a crusader for it. We just watched Trading Places with our kids. Oh, she's amazing. So yeah, she's awesome. But Jamie is going to play Scarpetta's sister, Dorothy. So okay. she and Nicole, two Oscar winners, are going to star in the Scarpetta TV. Um, this really great showrunner, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Sarnoff, is um, is at the head of all of this, and is you know they're so it's 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 getting it's getting that going. Is so and it's going great. To that is so great. Awesome. It's awesome going to be. In fact, now when I'm writing Dorothy scenes, all I see is Jamie. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. I see her in her onesie and <laughs> her outrageous doing karaoke like she does. That's is, now is that helping or is that? It's great. Okay, I love good, it. Good. And I'm and I host, and I love to see what Nicole brings to it. Yeah. Well, she's so talented. I'm sure she'll. Oh, she'll, she'll be do amazing. amazing things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, it's astonishing, really. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy for you. That's great. Well, thank you. Yet another thing. The, the, all right, Lee Child. If he listens to this episode, he's going to be calling me like, "Mate, you know, you're, <laughs> leave me alone." He's going to say, "Get that horrible woman away from me! I refuse to sit down with oh, her." Oh no, no, those guys all have the best <laughs> things to say about you. All right, uh, let's see. Process, but getting back to process. So you're in Boston now. Is there a place up there where you like to sort of sit and write? Coffee, tequila. How does it? Well, I don't. I don't write with tequila unless when Stacy's out of town. By the way, Stacey, is Stacy who's here? She's that beautiful redhead. Would she like some tequila? Stacey. Oh, she probably won't drink any right now. But right, we have an extra. I brought glasses. It's her fault. Coming. I mean, she's the one who introduced me to tequila. Um, but, but um, what were we just talking about? Oh, Boston and where you were. Boston. Okay, I have an office that we, we live in a apartment building that's right on the water, and and 
I have an apartment, a separate apartment at the other end of the hallway. And it's like Hemingway in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> you get up in the morning and you walk over the little flagstones in your bare feet. Mm-hmm. And, do you, and you get into your little place and you sit down and then you're going to see what the day's going to bring all by yourself. So that's where I go. And I have a lot of my, my memorabilia is hanging up in there. A lot of Jack the Ripper stuff historic things and and photographs of people like i have a a signed picture of harriet beecher stowe in there i have a signed picture of agatha christie in there i have a signed picture of hemingway in there they did not sign them for me and if i say it you know i would be lying (laughs) since i never met any of them but but that is where i go and when stacy's traveling if i'm still in boston i just live down there yeah and uh so it's nice to have a place. Like you have, a, have place a place where you sort of feel the atmosphere. I mean, and speaking of, you know, live, working the morgue, like sort of that gave you the materials and sort of the atmosphere for your books. There's like an atmosphere you like to get into where you write. Something that's not intrusive, you know, mm-hmm. and but it's like could you write on a plane? I I I can I can revise. I do a little bit of writing on planes mm-hmm. um, when I have big trips, like flying to London or to L.A. or things like that. And and I, I will have a laptop and I'll work, but I, I'm very limited what I can do yeah. in environments like that where, you know, I, I always compare it to going through the looking glass. It's it is really, truly like that. Um, or as Rick Rubin, the, the 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 music producer, who has this beautiful book about the way of of being, the creative act. If you haven't read that, you should. You should keep it right on your desk. Where basically, he talks about that you've got to to block out everything and be a clear channel. That that we are channeling something from somewhere. We don't understand it. Whatever this inspiration is, that that. That comes if you look for it. It doesn't just tap you on the shoulder and say, oh, you feel inspired today. Why don't you get up and write a poem? Oh, no, no, no. It it, it waits until you're headed out for hard labor. And then inspiration says, while you're there, chipping away at those rocks and hating yourself and your job and your everything, here's an idea mm-hmm. that comes to you. But you've got to you've got to give your give it your all or it will not. It won't conduct. And that may sound crazy, but I'm convinced that it's true. And it's not a special gift just for people like you and me. It's for everybody. Everybody is a creative. They have the ability. Most people just block it out. They get too brain heavy and they don't want to be open. And what you really need to be like is that beautiful radio telescope I tell you about, which is, you know, the diameter of it is like the size of a football field. And it's catching signals from out there, the universe. Yeah. And it points up when it's whatever it's following and it doesn't allow the noise floor of everything else around it to interfere with what it's trying to pick up. And that's what we have to do. So I go somewhere and I used to also rent places on the, you know, on the water because I love to hear the water. I love the water more than anything. But I, I just go and I, I seclude myself. Yeah. And that's how I get it done. And that's why I don't really know what's going to happen because it has to tell me. And I know it sounds crazy, but it really is true. It works. I, I believe that. You have to be ready to sort of receive You have that. to get out of the way. Yeah. Now, when you were- I, I also think there's sort of a, a frame of mind thing there. And you're you're an inspiring person to be around, which I feel here, and, and I'm sure listeners do too. But you had these crazy life experiences, and your attitude is, I'm going to take this, and I can use it to do something cool. You know, I'm going to yeah. go use it. Absolutely. It's- you know, you don't get to be good at anything without pain. If you want to be a professional athlete, you're going to suffer because you have to push yourself. If you're going to be a professional writer or if you're going to be on Sirius XM, you know, one of the biggest things on the planet, 
you have to push things to a point where it's not comfortable for you physically and emotionally some sometimes you it's mm-hmm. not for lazy people and but but uh, what I can be inspiring about is if I can do what I do and what I've done with as many setbacks as it appears that I've had, then you can too. And we're all creative. We just aren't creative in the same way, whether it's an Elon Musk or a Nikola Tesla or um, a Michelangelo or a Da Vinci or a Shakespeare or, or a radio host or someone who writes front page newspaper stories mm. all of it contributes to a composite of something that's a whole picture and we are just a part of it mm-hmm. and I'll, t- I'll tell you what i tell some of the most famous writers that you will have ever met and i won't mention them by name right now but what i've said to all of them when they don't when they're having trouble where they can't seem to make something just kind of like go where the story takes life because no matter how talented you are if it doesn't become alive it fails mm-hmm. and just like having a child really truly it is like giving birth to something alive and i just say it only asks one thing of you doug be willing if you're willing you mm-hmm. have no idea what may come channeling through you if you're just open to deciding that you will listen whether it's to bigfoot who, you know, when I was talking to Jeff Meldrum, we did a Zoom because I couldn't, it was in the, you know, COVID and stuff and I couldn't get out to, he was out in the middle of nowhere, Yellowstone Park, and we talked and um, and he made the strangest statement. He was talking about Bigfoot and he said, they want, they want their story told. But he said, they want you to tell their story. And what he meant was himself. But the way he said it, it almost sounded like he was channeling, telling me they wanted me. Mm-hmm. to tell their story. And I go, okay, that's weird. But you know what? Sure. You make me believe in you. I'll tell your story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I do believe in Bigfoot now. Did you, so you followed up with him and, and sort of got the... I kept doing stuff. And yeah. um, I even had a weird experience going up, looking up at caves last spring in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, nobody around. And we could hear something crashing through the woods, following us up to this this building where you'd go into this cavern where there's still the signatures of soldiers from the Civil War mm-hmm. written in, in a place called Grottoes, Virginia, which means cave. Um, we were doing this and this something's crashing in the brush going up to where we were. We go in and we're looking around and doing our thing. Come back about a half hour later, something's crashing in the brush, following us down. And then all of a sudden, some the stick threw out of nowhere and landed on the pavement in front of us. And the person I was walking with said, what the f was that because there was no trees overhead they were all off on the side and i don't know but something threw a stick at us that was making all that noise and i said it might be a baby foot they're very curious (laughs) and they and i said be careful what you look for because it will look for you back yeah i'm not kidding about that whether it's ghosts or bigfoot or jack the ripper if you look for it it will look for you and I found that to be awfully true when I wrote the Jack the Ripper thing. That if you, you t- I will tell you as I sit here, that entity, that evil entity is mm. absolutely not something made up. And it's still out there. Yeah. All right. I want to ask you about the Jack Ripper thing when we, when we, in a bit. But last sort of geeky question on process, just so listeners can sort of get the, the picture of you doing your, your craft. Are you typing it in on a computer or do you write by hand? Oh, no. I, I write on a keyboard computer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like I can't even think without it coming through my fingers that way. And when I did my very first book, at um, the Ruth Graham book, which 1983, when there weren't computers, 
because I'd started a newspaper with CRTs where you wrote on these mm-hmm. computers, you were using, um, you know, had all these pie signs and weird language. It was awful to have to learn this. But the cathode ray tube that, that I started on in 1980, um, I learned to compose on a keyboard at the newspaper. So when I had to do the Ruth book, I spent almost all in my advance on buying a, a Lanier word processor. It cost $12,000 back in the day. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Carter wrote his memoirs on it. That's how I knew about it. And I thought, I want one of these. I can't write on a typewriter anymore. So I, I, I wrote all of my early books on a word processor and then eventually switched over to a computer. You know, why, why you mentioned that, uh, the, so you wrote the biography in 83 of Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And I did read that when that came out, there, there was a, created sort of a fracture in your relationship with them. You're very close. Mm. They, maybe they didn't like elements of the book, but then you repair the relationship. How was the book received by them? No, what, it was worse than that. Um, okay, take another sip. <laughs> Fortify yourself. It was much worse than that. Um, when I was still a crime reporter at the Charlotte Observer, Ruth and I, um, I, I went to see her one day, and I said to her, I want to write a feature story on you. And she said, no. And I said, and she was in bed with the cold, I remember, because she had soup cooking in the kitchen and she was back in her bed. She smelled like rose milk. She used all that rose milk hand cream. Yeah. And and it was always wonderful walking in her house. I mean, there's nobody I loved more than Ruth. And and I went back to chat with her and I said, I, 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 first of all, I want to write your biography. And she said, well, no, thank you. I don't want my biography written. And I said, well, how about if I just do a feature story on you for the Charlotte Observer? And she said, well, I really don't write that, want that either, but but I'll think, but I'll consider it. I said, okay. So then I drove away and went back to Charlotte, and we talked about it, and she agreed to do the newspaper story. This is a great story. I I was, um, Charlie had already decided to move to Richmond, so I already told the newspaper I was leaving. Mm -hmm. So I was on my, I was a lame duck anyway. Charlie is the English professor. My my then husband. Um, It sounds so awful to call him that, because he's still a good friend. But she, um, so I said, well, I, I talked to the editor of the newspaper, and I said, I want to do this feature story. Will, will you hire me to do this on my way out the door? And he, he said, yeah, we'll, we'll give you like 150 bucks or something. And I said, no, I'm not doing that for $150. I said, are you kidding me? He said, well, nobody's going to care. I said, you don't know her. You don't know her. She is Billy Graham's greatest hidden secret. And said, and he said, well, well, well go ahead. And he took me to McDonald's, and we bought chicken McNuggets. And and um he's and I said I want five hundred dollars. He said okay. So, you know, I I started doing this thing. Well, let me just tell you, when that thing ran, it ran three Sundays in a row, and it was above the fold front page in the newspaper boxes all over Richmond. Excuse me, Charlotte, with placards with her picture on it. That's how big a story it was. So, mm-hmm. oh yes, I was right about what a great story she was. I mean, she was such a character that when I was interviewing her in her living room. A mouse ran under the the grandfather clock, and she was chasing the mouse around the room to get it outside. And you you look at this person, and you go, you are nothing like anybody would think you are. You are, you're funny. You're a little bit irreverent. um, You're sassy. You're beautiful. Um, If a protester puts a sign in front of you when you're trying to see something, you grab it out of his hands and you stand in front on it with your high heels and get arrested for assault like she really did. Because they figured out it was Billy Graham's wife doing it. She was 
amazing. Mm -hmm. And so she finally, I talked her into doing the biography, but let me tell you what happened after that. We just moved to Richmond and I'm just starting on this thing. I've just signed the contract. She goes off to the Mayo Clinic. She's getting a hip replacement. So I'm out of touch with her. I get a phone call from their lawyer. Well, back in the day, their lawyer was Harriet Pilpel, who was the biggest entertainment lawyer in the country. She's the one who got James Joyce's Ulysses um, into this country when it was banned. She mm -hmm. was the head of the ACLU, I think, at one time. She was a I mean, a scary lawyer. I'm this little nobody living in a seminary apartment in Richmond, Virginia, with my husband who's gone to seminary. He's not earning any money, and I'm not. All I have is like the first part of a $40,000 advance, which was a lot back then, for this book. And the phone rings, and it's Harriet Pilpel. And she says, I am ordering you on behalf of the Graham family to cease and desist with this biography. And I said, who are you to order me to do that? I'm Harriet Pilpel. And I knew who she was. And I said, well, Ruth gave me permission to do it. And she says, well, I'm telling you, the family doesn't want it. And you're to cease and desist immediately. Is it, is it largely written at this point? No, I hadn't even started it. Oh. I've just signed the contract. I mean, I'm just getting into it. Um, and, of course, I couldn't call Ruth. Well, all to say, she gave me permission Mm -hmm. But the organization did not. did not. My claim to fame at that point was an investigative series on prostitution in Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you think Billy Graham's people wanted me to write the story about his wife? So when the, when the articles were coming out in the paper, was she a fan of those or she, she was upset by those? No, she wasn't upset at all. But she, yeah. she would just tell me she never read anything. She probably didn't. Mm -hmm. She said she never even read the biography. She probably didn't. And she never read any of the Scarpetta books, I know for sure, because she said that that. She said, if you would get rid of the cuss words, they'd sell like hotcakes. She just said that to me. I said, oh, please let me put that as a blurb on the book. I'll sell so many copies. I'll never have to work again. If it wasn't for all the profanity and violence, it would sell like hotcakes. Mrs. Billy Graham, can I? No. So anyway, those people did everything they could to stop me from doing that book. It was really, it's, it delayed it for a year. I stopped getting paid for a year. Um. I was never been so upset in my life, and they made and sure. Did you I ever get a call from Billy saying stop it, like Bill, a personal call? Billy, Billy went to my publisher and ordered them not to publish the book to stop it. Did he, he ever went, give you a personal call and say no, don't do this? No, no, but he did. No, he did worse than that. He went to the publisher and told mm. them to stop it. Right, and um, and they they did, and and then they let one of her daughters rewrite the whole thing, and it was okay. I'm talking too much again. I've never said any of this. It was awful. Awful, awful. And I called the, the the publisher called me, he said, What would it take for you to let us release this rewritten biography? Because he said, quote unquote, if it has her on the cover, a comic book would sell. And I, I said, Excuse me? He said, Well, what would it take for you to let us publish what this rewrite is? I said, A lobotomy. He said, Oh. <laughs> So the daughter tried to do a rewrite, and you said, hell no. They were rewriting the quotes that I had in there. I had was quoting Dan Rather, and they, re they were rewriting everybody's <laughs> they were quotes. Dan Rather. We have videotape <laughs> or it audio tape. It was terrible, and yeah. I got a lawyer involved, and I got the rights back to do what I needed to do, and I returned it to as much of its semblance as I so could. So your, your book is what was published in the end. That My book yeah. was published in the end, but with compromises, mm -hmm. because they did not want that. and. They changed all their phone numbers, and I couldn't call Ruth anymore. Mm -hmm. So truth be told, that came out in 1983. I did not hear from her ever again 
until the early 90s when I started becoming famous as a crime writer. And then she was I, she was prompted to invite me to come visit because mm-hmm. I think they realized I might be somebody who had some notoriety that maybe I should be friendly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm just being honest. That's why that happened. And mm-hmm. I did go back to see her. And Billy was on his way out the door. It was very foggy. I remember driving up the mountain. It was uh, being driven up the mountain with this heavy, heavy fog. And I, and Billy was very sweet. He was a nice man, but he was also controlled by people. And he opened the door. He was on his way out because I think it was Gerald Ford. One of the presidents had died. I don't remember which one. And he was heading off to that. And he took my hand in both of his and he said, thank you for always being so kind to my family. And I thought, what you're really saying is, please continue to be kind to my right, family. Right, Don't hurt us. Who who controls Billy Graham? Does he have investors the in the church? Or like, the Billy like, Graham organization. But who who are they? Are they owners of the organization? Is it like a company with it's shareholders? All those well, I don't yeah. think they're, I don't know about shareholders, but it's still around, but it's yeah. run by his son Franklin now. Franklin now, right? Yeah. 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 yeah he, um, he's no fan of mine. So I, I, I wrote this down. So Billy Graham died in 2018, so not long ago. Ruth Bell died back in 07. Um, but so you ultimately sort of reconciled we, oh, to a yeah, point. She they, loved I guess me. they sort of they almost sort of cried no, mercy. They're she, like, oh my gosh, she's so powerful. Well, Let's no, be nice she, to her. She never turned me down to come see her. Oh, that's nice. And and um, we oh listen, I mean, and she was after all that was over. I mean, as as early as the as as the early part of 1993, when I was just really new at this, and I was in a terrible car accident in L.A. and I had a concussion and all this stuff, and I wasn't doing well. And I was in Richmond, and I said, "Would you just come see me? Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not. I mean, I don't know what's just happened. I should have died in this thing, and I'm I'm not really feeling good." Mm-hmm. And she did. She came to see me, and it was the most wonderful time. We played dress up. I took. I was wearing all these designer clothes, Escada, you know, these suits with ties, like these very 1920s men-looking things. So I've dressed her like me. I have a picture of it, of the two of us dressed up with ties. And we went out to dinner, and I and I had a concussion, so she drove my. I had a Mercedes that was also made by Porsche. It was mm-hmm. a badass little Batmobile. Mm-hmm. That crazy woman's driving us to dinner. She was mm-hmm. in. I mean, she was in her 80s by then, and um. And we had the most wonderful visit, and you know, but she she was always my my close friend up until the very until I wasn't really allowed to see her anymore. All right, so I wanted to ask you a couple one one question before we get into the lightning round, or two two questions before we get into the lightning round. One is um, one thing I hear, and this is probably largely due to your incredible forensic uh, background that you bring to these novels. That sometimes you hear that. Because of the shows like CSI and SUV, uh, Law and Order SUV, when they get to the trial stage, it kind of buttons up nicely in these shows. And so that now all these people, the millions and millions of people around the world who have seen these shows, when they actually get on a jury, they're mm. expecting it to button up so nicely. Mm-mm. And in real life, that doesn't happen. No. And so it, be, these shows can actually influence the outcomes of real life trials. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well... You're you're absolutely right, and we do live in an age where people expect things to be tied up in a nice, tidy bow. And a good yeah. example is you think of the Murdoch trial down in South Carolina, um, of the, the lawyer, you know, charged with ki- uh, killing his his um, son and wife, and and you get into stuff is so um, overblown by the media that nobody, even the juries, nobody know what's. I mean, how do you know what's going on anymore? And and you can't keep this away from people. They're influenced. Um, and I think nothing is neat and tidy and, and in real life, nothing is neat and tidy. Mm-hmm. So often, even when the evidence may conclusively show that somebody committed certain murders, 
um, you still may not really understand why. Mm -hmm. There's always questions. Nothing's ever tied up neatly. Yeah. I loved Unnatural Death. It's it's phenomenal. One of the things I love, so I've I've got the galley here, and on page 31 of the galley, there's this scene where Kay is talking about her husband, and they're busy people, and, and they're talking about how they're looking forward to their plans. But then, of course, like busy people, their plans just get blown up. And the way she talks about it, the relationship, it's just a small, it's a paragraph, but it says so much about things in that it's like the way people who really love each other have that natural comfort, not in a boring way at all, but only goodness. You know, it's just how she sees that relationship. Which is the way it should be with everybody. Mm-hmm. And no matter who you're with, whether it's your spouse or your or your best friend or your or or your favorite Doug radio host and author, um, you you always want to strive for improving both of you. Mm-hmm. Everything should be about making each other better. We are all we are all connected. If you believe in quantum mechanics, and whether you believe in it or not, it believes in you. Whether you're a particle or a wave, everything's connected by waves. The butterfly effect. Everything that happens anywhere. Just look what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it it impacts everything. So you you want to help facilitate those that work with you. Mm-hmm. You never. I mean, you're so kind to do this interview, but it's also about you. We're in this together. This isn't just me. Mm-hmm. This isn't just you. This is us. And we're doing something that's going to change things that we don't even know about. And that's what life is. That's what it's supposed to be. I love that. I love that. Be willing. Be a good conductor. Well, Unnatural Death is fantastic. Well, thank and, you. And uh, Case Garpetta, otherwise known in some circles as Nicole Kidman, soon to be, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so people should check that out. It's just an, yet another awesome book. So on to the lightning round. Favorite book as a kid. I love The Wizard of Oz, Frank Baum. Awesome. I love, and I, and I still allude to The Wizard of Oz, and and, and more and, people should read it as opposed oh, to just see the movie. Oh, it's so good! Yeah. Yeah. What a masterful storyteller! And I, I have it on my Kindle right now. I look at it; it, it inspires me. I am most inspired in my work by fairy tales and fables <laughs> that make you full of wonder. I love it. Book or book? I know you're, you know, beginning the book tour, but book or books you're reading now, if if any? Well, I'm reading Rick Rubin's book. I mentioned that a little while ago, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, you know, all about being an artist, a creative. Um, I, I consider it, I keep it right on my desk. And every, every day, I've never even met Rick, Rick Rubin, um, but every day when I sit down to write, I open his book to see where it opens. I just let it open to any place and I read something he has to say about being a creative mm-hmm. to remind myself of the process and why I am doing it. Least attend. This is a show favorite question. Least attended book event ever. My very first. There are more than one, but my very first book signings. The first one for for postmortem for Scarpetta. Nobody showed up. Um, the one where I paid for all those books to be in the window. Um, and and uh, one lady walked to- towards me. It was like it was like a time lapse. She's going so slow, <laughs> heading towards me. And then she reaches out her hand with a crumpled napkin and says, do you know where the trash can is? <laughs> and that was it. So that was. That's the one where you had all the books in, that yeah. you donated in the window. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. All right. Greatest female tennis player ever. Billie Jean King. No doubt. Greatest male tennis player ever. I love Roger Federer yeah. because he'll do anything to perfect the art of what he does. 
and what a gracious, lovely human. Yeah. The maestro, he is, he's my favorite to watch for sure. Oh, I feel like I'm poetry. kind of coming over to Djokovic's greatest ever, but Federer was still my favorite to watch. Me too. Best crime or investigation show or movie ever made? I love Happy Valley. The British show. I don't know that one. Oh, my God. It is so good. It really shows policing and everything for what you will love it. You must watch it with Sarah Lancaster. Um, My favorite crime type movie is Silence of the Lambs. And I still think the book is, I mean, really, truly, it's one of the one of the greatest things you could anybody ever wrote. Really? Thomas Harris is amazing. I will. I've never read the book. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's so good. All right. Last question for Patricia Cornwell. One piece of advice for the listeners. One least piece of advice. Look up. Remember what that you may come from something wonderful and be mindful of that, that you may help along the journey to find what that is. Because I do believe we're all put here for a reason, whether it's religion or whatever you want or or or, or like Francis Crick, who, who helped um, discover the, the double helix structure of DNA and won the Mo- Nobel Prize for it. He believed that life here came from something glorious elsewhere, mm-hmm. whether that would be God or a higher society in the galaxies, which I tend to think is true. Just be mindful. You are precious and from something really good stock and live up to it. I love it. Well, I had huge expectations for this interview, and you have exceeded them. Thank you well, so much so for coming. And so have you. And plus, I, I'm glad I'm not driving away to the next one. <laughs> great to see you. It's great to see you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.